People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down, when you're strange. Bum, bum, bum. Faces come out of the rain. Bum. When you're strange, bump, but no one remembers your name. When you're strange, when you're strange. Welcome to episode 76 of That Thing with James J. Asher II. I'm your host, James J. Asher II. That's me. I am recording this one all on my lonesome today. Uh, so it's like old school, baby. Um, and today we're going to pick up on something I thought I was going to cover in the last episode, but uh, I, I took a lot of notes. So although this is part three of New Age Nazis, <laughs> it's more like part two and a half because I wanted to cover this um, seeing Part two, I wanted to cover, you know, the early years of Himmler um, and then get into some of the events of the time that kind of perhaps influenced the trajectory of Himmler's life. Uh, speaking of Himmler, while I've got it on my mind, the guy really was an incel. And I wanted to drive that home in the last episode, but I forgot to talk about it. Um but I, I found like further, um, you know, records of his journal and stuff like that. And the guy's super fucking incel, just talking about why women don't like him, like why he can't get a girlfriend, why aren't cat girls real. He wrote about his, you know, waifu body pillow. I'm joking. He really didn't. But if he were alive today, he definitely would. He's definitely that teenager on Call of Duty multiplayer screaming the N-word in your ear. Like, the, the guy was a, you know, a asshole gamer incel of his time. And uh, he, you know, turned, uh, I don't want to say turned into a monster. Perhaps he was already a monster, but um, he certainly did monstrous things and had monstrous ideas. And, um, speaking of monster, I even found like an article of his daughter who I'm not sure if she's still alive, but she was like 70 at the time or something. And it had been decades and decades after world war II. Um, I think it was around the end of which Himmler did eventually take his own life by, um, you know, ingesting arsenic. I believe it was arsenic. Well, the daughter, She's, uh, well, was very much of the opinion that her father was a good man, a good father, and not a monster. She's also, or was also, depending on if she's alive or not, a Holocaust denier. So, you know, there you go. So, in this episode, I really want to at least drive home the point that I sort of spoke of. Um, in passing about how difficult conditions can, difficult living conditions, um, difficult material conditions 
can make for desperate people. And desperate people can make desperate decisions, uh, dangerous decisions, maybe even, as we will see as the series goes on. And, you know, I've been getting letters and phone calls and emails from lots of people saying, James, I thought this was New Age Nazis. I thought you were going to cover the occult stuff. And the thing is, all right, hold on, pause for a second. No, don't pause this podcast, but just slow your roll. First off, no one has contacted me saying any of that stuff. Um, perhaps if I had a bigger following, you know, if I was a big, you know, whatever. Uh, God, I just did a Joe Biden. Oh, you know, I shouldn't say. Perhaps if I had like millions of followers, people would be talking shit saying, yo, you said you would be talking about occult stuff. Um, well, I have a little bit and I will, I'll really get into it, but I also want to give an accurate, um, well, as close to accurate, uh, historical review of what happened and, uh, provide some context for, you know, the world that shaped these people and where they got these ideas, like why did they build a castle and do blood sacrifices and shit like that, which, you know, happened. But I want to first set up the scene so you have a context to better understand. You have a better, more complete picture of what's going on. So in this episode, I'm going to cover um, World War I and most importantly, what happened afterward. And that's, that's the real ticket there. Not to minimize the rest of the stuff. So, all right, enough prelude. Let's jump in. Let's talk about how desperate people can make dangerous decisions. And let us begin with World War I. That was a war that uh, officially began July 28th of 1914 and ended November 11th. 1919. Wait, is that right? Let me check that. When did WWI end? Did I fuck up my notes? I did. I was a year off. It ended on Armistice Day, November 11th, 1918. I knew I was off. I knew I was off. So it was four years officially. So how did it start? Well, how did World War I start is really up for debate. One of the major catalysts for it, however, was the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. You know, like that band? Hey, Emily, what's a Franz Ferdinand song? Take me out. Huh? That's how it goes. See, I could, uh, I've got a fucking heckler in the peanut gallery and she won't be my co-host today. All right, fine. I've just got fucking critics in the background trying to do my fucking podcast here. This is professional. This is unprofessional. I'm running a professional production here, okay? Yeah, 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 yeah whatever. Uh, so Franz Ferdinand was the Archduke of Austria-Hungary, also known as Austro-Hungary. I kind of like Austro-Hungary because it rolls off the tongue more easily. 
but some people insist on calling it Austria-Hungary, which was uh, a single state. Well, it was like technically two sovereign countries wrapped up into one sovereign country. Eh. Well, the assassination was carried out by a man named, I love this name, Gavrilo Princip, or perhaps Gavrilo Princip, if you're real nasty. Gavrilo Princip was a Serbian nationalist with ties to a secret military group called the Black Hand, a.k.a. Unity or Death. So the events leading up to the assassination are, like the rest of the events leading up to World War I, pretty murky. And I didn't bother going into, you know, far too far into that tangent, but it was at the time widely publicized, a, a widely publicized event, the assassination that is, that led Europe to divide into two military alliances. Britain, France, and Russia formed a triple entente versus Germany, Austro-Hungary, and Italy. They created, I guess, what the uh, quote-unquote allies called the quote-unquote axis. Like, who's, who's to call who a bad guy? Everyone's the good guy in their own mind. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? I need to drink some water. Just a second. I'll let you listen to me while I drink some water. You're listening to NPR. History. Occult. Radio. divided into two military alliances, Britain, France, and Russia versus Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. Most historians agree that the emergence of these alliances between the major powers at the time were one of the major causes of the descent into war. That is to say, the act of each of these countries coming together aid uh, to each other's aid created a bloody domino effect so here's a brief timeline of what happened on june 28th of 1914 gavrilo princip assassinates franz ferdinand on july 28th one month later of the same year austria hungary declares war on serbia now the reason serbia had a secret like paramilitary group called the Black Hand, a.k.a., oh, what was it, Unity or Death, was because, well, Austria-Hungary had been trying to take over Serbia for quite some time. And like all things in history, one person says the other person started it, and that other person says that one person started it. So all you really need to know is that um, Serbia was smaller in Austria-Hungary, but they put up a pretty good uh, defense against Austria-Hungary. Serbia did. And Austria-Hungary was pissy about that. And then Serbia was like, well, quit fucking with us. And they kept fucking with them. So then, uh, you know, 
Gavrilo Princip um, assassinated Franz Ferdinand. And then I think it was like a week later, perhaps a month later, um, um, Ferdinand's wife was also assassinated. I forgot to look up what city it was in. Um, anyway, so July 28th, 1914, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. August 2nd, 1914, so this is pretty moving pretty fast, month to month. The Ottoman, actually, that's just a few days later, July 28th to August 2nd. Um, Ottoman Empire, that is Turkey and a bunch of other places, Greece and everything else. The Ottoman Empire and Germany signed a secret treaty of alliance. And then one day later, on August 13th, Germany declares war on France. And then August 4th, yet the next day later, Germany invades Belgium, leading Britain to declare war on Germany. And then on August 10th of 1914, Austria-Hungary invades <coughs> Russia. As the war progressed, further acts of aggression drew many other countries into the war. One major influencer, to use <laughs> contemporary parlance, was the United States. However, India, Australia, Australia can't, and most African colonies joined in, or I would say were coerced in, to fight on behalf of their imperial overlords. So here's an overview. Kaiser Wilhelm II inherited the throne, the throne, the throne, becoming the last German emperor and king of Prussia. So, his emperor acceded to the throne in Germany. Okay, supposedly Kaiser Wilhelm II. Also, did you know that like Caesar, like Caesar salad or Caesar Augustus, if it's spelled with a C, even though it's spelled with a C, it's actually pronounced Kaiser like Kaiser Wilhelm, it'd be uh, um, Julius Kaiser, you know, uh, Kaiser Augustus. Anyway, um, supposedly Kaiser Wilhelm II was mentally unstable, kind of immature and narcissistic, which to me sounds a lot like Trump. He was really hungry. He was thirsty baby to spread Germany's influence. And I, I also wouldn't doubt that, you know, Wilhelm was probably a megalomaniac. Well, he wanted to spread Germany's influence and he intentionally made moves to destabilize any sort of balance in the current international relations. Furthermore, there was widespread poverty across Europe at the time. Lots of cultural upheaval because of the still new industrial revolution. Lots of labor unrest. Socialist and anarchist groups began to form, and some socialists even got elected into parliament. Also, at the time, uh, the German government was completely toothless. Wow, I, I really, um, my notes here kind of jumping ahead making assumptions that I later <laughs> don't have to assume because I read about it. Um, yeah, so I'm reading off some notes. Don't worry if they... I'm trying to make them make sense. So, all right, here we go. 
But even this theory of the domino effect, that is, uh, these alliances coming together, causing other people to get nervous and form other alliances, one person arms up, Jack arms up, so then Jill gets nervous and arms up, so on and so forth. But even the theory of this domino effect caused by these alliances is viewed by many historians as overly simplistic. Military historian Gary Sheffield argues that the war started because of two principal reasons. The first was that decision makers in Berlin and Vienna chose to pursue a course that they hoped would bring about significant political advantages, even if it brought about a general war. They, they thought, all right, let's make some moves and get some territory. And yeah, it's going to be a bit of fighting, but we think it'll fizzle out pretty quickly. That was their idea. The second principal reason, according to Gary Sheffield, is uh, that the governments in the Triple Entendre states, that is the British, the French, and Russian allies, they rose to the challenge. So at best, Austria and Hungary launched a reckless gamble that went badly wrong. And at worst, 1914 saw a premeditated war of aggression and conquest, a conflict that proved to be far removed from the swift and decisive nature that some had envisioned. So the way I like to think about countries, bear with me, I, when I think of a, a nation, I think of it as like a person, an individual, like me, or like you, or like someone you know. Every country is like a single person, and that person has a certain disposition, a certain personality. They maybe act a certain way. Um, and maybe they have, uh, you know, a nicer house than the next person. See what I mean? So at this time, I feel like um, a lot of these countries that were involved in at least the precipitation of World War I, personally, I think it was someone flexing. I think these people were already like kind of pestering each other. And then one person goes like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to take your lunch money. And one person's like, no. And then the other person steps in and is like, back off. And then they start bowing up like, back off me, bro. Fuck you, man. Back off me, bro. Start some shit. Try some shit. Find out. Fuck around. Find out, bro. And they start pushing each other around. And then it turns into a stupid parking lot fight after school. Well, anyway, that the alliances was one element of the beginning of World War I. Another is that family feuding could have played a part, and I dare say not an insignificant one, in the birth of the First World War. See, the heads of state of Britain, Germany, and Russia had a unique relationship. King George V, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and Tsar Nicholas II were first cousins. Yes, the leaders, the the heads of state of Britain, Germany, and Russia were all related. They were all first cousins. And I swear to God, they were probably all inbred because that's that's the way royal families work. It's royal inbreed, royal inbreeding, royal breeding, in royal. It's, it's not a good thing. And these people have too much fucking power. And they're 
inbred, syphilitic, uh, mercury, lead-poisoned maniacs with lots of guns. And they, you know, these people are usually royalties fucking stupid as shit and have very uh, underdeveloped worldviews because they want for nothing and live a very insular, privileged life. Plus, they're just fucking stupid. So, well, anyway, uh, all three of these guys were first cousins. And not just that, but they knew each other quite well. I won't go too far into their relationships, but I will share these quotes. First, from historian uh, Richard Davenport Hines. He says, The events leading up to the conflict are a study in the envy, insincerity, festering rancor, and muddle that only families can manage. End quote. He said this in a uh, review he did of a book written by one Miranda Carter about this subject. Secondly, uh, the second quote is from journalist Ruth Style and Styles. Quote, As relationships between the royal cousins waxed and waned, so did the relationships uh, between their countries. End quote. So, by the end of 1918, Kaiser Wilhelm II was deposed, that is, forced out of his seat, and fled to exile in the Netherlands. Meanwhile, Tsar Nicholas, his wife, and their children, a.k.a. the Romanovs, had been executed by revolutionaries. Wink, comrade. And King George V found himself presiding over a broken and debt-ridden empire. But who was the primary aggressor of the whole mess? Well, historians are still debating that one. But the most common theory is that it was the blank check that Germany cut for Austria-Hungary to support Austria-Hungary's invasion of Serbia the latter of whom, Serbia, had already kicked, as I mentioned earlier, Austria's ass when Austria tried invading them in 1914. It was all a bunch of territorial pissings, and every war prior and post has been nothing more nor less. We, the slaves and proletariat, are the ones who are always sent to die for the fits and tantrums and gains of the ruling class. I say rise up. I say organize and rise. The war happened. It was stupid and unnecessary, but it ended with the Treaty of Versailles, which I will cover after this short water break. And we're back. We left off with uh, the beginning of the Treaty of Versailles, which happened at the Paris Peace Conference. So let's jump in with the Treaty of Versailles, or if you're from Ohio, Versailles. World War I ended when Germany signed an armistice on November 11th of 1918, aka Armistice Day. Then the Treaty of Versailles was signed on June 28th of 1919, 
so some months later. Uh, and, and the treaty went into effect on January 10th of 1920. Uh, the signing happened at the Palace of Versailles in Paris, Texas. I mean, France. It marked the official end of World War I and codified peace terms between the quote-unquote victorious allies versus Germany. Um, the, the treaty held Germany responsible for starting the war, and it imposed harsh penalties in terms of loss of territory and massive reparation payments and demilitarization. So when Germany entered the Paris peace talks, of which the Versailles Treaty was a major part, Germany assumed that the Versailles Treaty would be based on the 14 points, which was a sort of peace manifesto written by then United States President Woodrow Wilson. Why did they think that? Well, because that's what had been advertised to them heretofore. Oh yeah, heretofore. How do you like that word? So this is from history.com. I, I just fully copy-pasted this shit, because at a certain point last night, this has been a difficult week, and uh, last night I was just like, yeah, fuck it, I'm just going to copy-paste. So, from history.com, quote, The 14 points speech of Woodrow Wilson was an address delivered before a joint meeting of Congress on January 8th of 1918, during which he outlined his vision for a stable, long-lasting peace in Europe, the Americas, and the rest of the world following World War I. Wilson's proposal called for the victorious allies to set, an unsel to set unselfish peace terms with the vanquished central powers of World War I, including freedom of the seas, the restoration of territories conquered during the war, and the right to national self-determination in such contentious regions as the Balkans. Pause real quick on that. Um, the, the sort of tagline Wilson used to pitch his 14 points was peace, or what was it? Um, yeah, peace without victory. So he recognized that World War I was a big mess. There was a lot of opportunistic people making opportunistic moves, starting fighting, causing unrest, making it easier for people to claim territory amid the chaos. Um, so President Wilson, he came up with this idea of saying, okay, let's just not blame anybody because this is a big fucking mess. Um, there is no really clear um, initial aggressor. I mean, you could easily point at uh, Austria-Hungary for invading Serbia, but then you could point f to Germany for enabling them. But then you could point to the Ottoman Empire, of which actually the, uh, the British had an alliance with um, Tsar Nicholas and the other higher-ups of the um, dynastic Russian rule. Um, they were basically they had like a secret alliance going on where they and France, I believe, wanted to divide up the Ottoman Empire for themselves and take it over. 
Um, but that was secret at the time. That wouldn't get released until some, you know, good people, I would say, kind of uh, took power in Russia and said, no more lies, no more bullshit. We need transparency and accountability. But I'll get to that in a bit. Well, getting back to this quote from history.com. In his speech, Wilson itemized 14 strategies to ensure national security and world peace. Several points addressed specific territorial issues in Europe, but the most significant sections set the tone for post-war American diplomacy and the ideals that would form the backbone of U.S. foreign policy as the nation achieved superpower status in the early 20th century. Wilson could foresee that international relations would only become more important to American security and global commerce as it grew. He advocated equal trade conditions, arms reductions, and national sovereignty for former colonies of Europe's weakening empires. The speech was translated and distributed to soldiers and citizens of Germany and Austria-Hungary, and it contributed to their decision to agree to an armistice in November of 1918. And like the man himself, Wilson's 14 points were liberal, democratic, and idealistic. He spoke in grand and inspiring terms, but was less certain of the specifics of how his aims would be achieved. My note, did a leftist write that paragraph? <laughs> Talking shit? Okay, so at the Paris Peace Conference, Wilson had to contend with the leaders of the other victims quote-unquote, victorious allied nations, who disagreed with many of the 14 points and demanded stiff penalties for Germany in the Treaty of Versailles. France in particular, this is my note, France in particular uh, were really contending for really harsh terms against the Germans. They were like, foaming at the mouth and out for German blood, partly because the leaders, at least, were still butthurt over losing the Franco-Prussian War, which happened a bit earlier before World War I. And then England was against the 14 points because some of the, the implications of the, some of the points they felt would weaken their already vast surplus of power as an empire. So, Wilson urged the establishment, Wilson also, alongside the 14 points, urged the establishment of an international governing body of United Nations for the purpose of guaranteeing political independence and territorial integrity to great and small countries alike. His idea gave birth to the short-lived League of Nations, end quote. Now, uh, the idea of a League of Nations and his idea of the uh, 14 points, the way I look at it is going back to the analogy of um, nations being individuals, nations as an individual person. These people, it's always, I say 
almost every problem. I say a vast majority of problems. People like me, people like you, people like people you know. A lot of our problems are the result of communication breakdown or lack of communication to begin with. So what Woodrow Wilson was trying to do here was say, hey, guys, slow the fuck down. Before we start sending our own people to kill each other, let's maybe try to talk this stuff out first. Because maybe we both want the same thing, like maybe we're both on the same side of an issue, but we don't realize it because we're not fucking communicating. So let's, before we jump into any crazy action, like next time, let's communicate and let's start right now. And let's also start respecting other people, other smaller nations. Let's start respecting each other. And, um, well, people are assholes, especially if they have a lot of power and privilege and, uh, uh, and, and are fucking stupid and they just won't want to communicate. So a lot of people said poo poo to the 14 points. Plus some of the 14 points called for lowering of tariffs because see at the time, the United States, it, it took a lot of, um, it was not an easy decision for the United States to get involved in World War I, because at the time, the United States was rather isolationist. And of course, the isolationists were mostly conservatives, Republicans, um, such as one Henry Lodge Cabot, Republican of Massachusetts, See, he basically declared war on the idea of a League of Nations and Wilson's 14 points. Wilson, he, he got some, like, for the time, pretty progressive acts through antitrust bills and, um, like, good shit that people need to kind of, like, stop monopolies from forming. Uh, among other things. And he was very much of the idea of like sort of proselytizing American ideals of democracy and self-determination and liberty. So his heart was in a good place, but he was kind of very liberal in the idea of like, the way we do that is like, our, we've got a great system. We've got, it's not perfect, but it's probably the best system in the world. And I see a lot of struggle in other places. And I think we should go to those places and intervene and proselytize how great our system is. Um, so there's that. He was kind of coming from that angle. Well, okay, going back, U.S. conservative and isolationist, and isolationists in general, especially Henry Lodge Cabot, the Republican of Massachusetts, declared war on the Wilsonian ideals. So Wilson went on a 27-day train tour around the U.S. to sell his idea to the people themselves. But the tour ended early because Wilson got sick, and upon returning to Washington, Washington D.C., he died of a stroke. So, Congress just flat out refused to enter the League of Nations or even engage in the uh, Treaty of Versailles, although 
uh, or, or the, the following points of the treaty. Um, Wilson had already been present to help negotiate the treaty. Um, because, well, Congress refused to enter that stuff because of the loudmouthed snowflake isolationists who claimed that the two things, the treaty and the league, would hinder U.S. autonomy in international affairs. FYI, the 14 points sought to lower tariffs. These guys who said, you know, America first. We got to think about ourselves. Isolationism. We got to take care of ourselves. I guarantee you they're fucking white, you know, white supremacist motherfuckers, or at least adjacent at, at heart. <laughs> Maybe they didn't realize it, but I guarantee they're fucking white supremacists. And capitalists. Duh. They want to fuck things up or fuck other people over to make more money and get more power and feel more, try to feel more good about themselves. So they said, you know, fuck equality for all. I want it. Me, 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 me. Gimme. So, okay. The Paris Peace Conference. Let's talk about that. Let me take a sip of water first. So let's go to the Paris Peace Conference in general. The big four leaders of victorious Western nations, Wilson of the United States, David Lloyd George of Great Britain, Georges Clemento, the butthurt leader of France, and to a lesser extent, Vittorio Orlando of Italy, dominated the peace negotiations in Paris. Germany, however, and the other defeated powers, Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Turkey, were not present for the conference, this conference that was going to be dictating what would happen next to them. I assume they probably weren't really invited either. Uh, Russia also was not present at this peace conference because, well, Russia had, under imperial rule, fought as one of the allied powers until 1917, when the country's new Bolshevik government concluded a separate peace with Germany and withdrew from the conflict because they were like, we'll let you guys duke this out. You're all fucking idiots. And we're less concerned about you. We're concerned about your people. Your people are being exploited. And we want to make sure that they understand how, why, and by whom they are being exploited. And perhaps offer an alternative like we're doing. Um, so part of, part of, while I'm on the Bolsheviks, they, um, they like publicize, like put it out in New York Times, uh, big newspapers all around the world. They found documentation, a lot of secret documentation that the uh, uh, former Russian leaders had. Um, and some of the stuff was pretty shady, like the thing I alluded to earlier, where um, the Romanovs or whomever else, the imperial leaders of Russia at the time, were making secret treaties with Britain and I believe France and a little bit with Italy to basically say, you know, we've got a certain international uh, agreement with the Ottoman Empire, which was like Greece and Syria, etc. Um, I think we can maybe, during this conflict, we can go in and take that shit for ourselves. 
Yeah. So then when the Bolsheviks came in, the Marxists, the socialists, the communists, the uh, striving communists, they were like, oh, you guys were planning on doing something shady? I think everyone ought to fucking know about this. And if there's one thing that shitty fucking bosses hate is accountability and transparency. And take it from me, bosses fucking hate that shit. And I've done that. Oh, I find shit out and I, I, let, I fucking air out that laundry because people deserve to know because that's true justice. Anyway, anyway, in the, four, uh, in the years following the Treaty of Versailles, many ordinary Germans believed that they had been betrayed by what they called the November criminals, those leaders who signed the treaty and formed the post-war government. That would be the, um, oh God, what the fuck was it called? Oh my God. It was, um, Jesus Christ, James is the government. Well, anyway, it was after, after the imperial thing ended, uh, the Weimar, the Weimar Republic was formed after, you know, Wilhelm got the boot. Um, and Germany was used to monarchic type rule. So this was their first real hack at any kind of like democratic republic establishment. And it was a fucking mess. And that's a whole big story, but I'm not going to get too much into that, but it did affect, um, the way things, the, it, it did affect how, uh, the material conditions were for, you know, average people. And it also affected how, um, Hitler and the Nazi party managed to wrest complete power of the country. Ooh. Oh no, my printer, I kicked it. Okay. So, um, they believed that they'd been betrayed by the November criminals, those leaders who signed the treaty and formed the post-war governments. Radical right-wing political forces, especially the National Socialist Workers' Party or the Nazi Party, would gain support in the 1920s and 30s by promising to reverse the humiliation of the Versailles Treaty. And with the onset of the Great Depression in 1929, economic unrest destabilized the already vulnerable Weimar government, setting the stage for Nazi leader Adolf Hitler's fateful rise to power in 1933. Also, I'd like to call back to the last episode in which I mentioned some of the critics of the Versailles Treaty. One notable one was um, economist John Maynard Keynes of Great Britain. Um, he said that uh, the reparations demanded were far too harsh. They were ridiculously harsh, and it would cause hyperinflation and lead to a lot of economic and thus political instability, not just in Germany. It would affect the world. And mind you, this is still uh, the industrial 
era was still pretty new. So people were getting used to, they were going from like sort of like old feudal living in the hut, eating mud and, you know, wiping their butt with their feet kind of life going, oh, oh yes, Lord. Hey, you yes, your highness. You know, slapping each other in the faces with fish, Monty Python style. They were moving from that into a more sort of a democratic ideology. And there's all sorts of new technology and people are able to travel and communicate uh, broader and more quickly around the world. So there was a big adjustment period for everyone at this time. Um, and on top of that came, of course, basically a global Great Depression, like the American Great Depression, you could argue, was perhaps a direct result of the Treaty of Versailles. Well, going back to the treaty itself and, and what happened afterwards, one big part of Germany's reaction to the treaty was the stab-in-the-back myth. The myth was the idea uh, widely believed and promulgated by right-wing circles in Germany after 1918, that the German army did not actually lose World War I on the battlefield, but was instead betrayed by civilians on the home front, especially Jews, communists, and social democrats, the name of the libs of the time. It was your basic denial tactic that ends up blaming your shitty conditions on minority groups. Note, the myth originated from upper echelon members of the German military. So it became sort of like your urban myth, like, you know, you just hear it around town from your worker, co-workers, neighbors, family, and shit like that. But it kind of started with the like the generals and, and shit like that in the military because they were really anti-Semitic. So when Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party came to power in 1933, they made the legend an integral part of their official history of the 1920s, portraying the Weimar Republic as the work of the November criminals who stabbed the nation in the back to seize power while betraying it. The Nazi propaganda depicted Weimar as a, quote, morass of corruption, degeneracy, national humiliation, ruthless persecution of the honest national opposition. Fourteen years of rule by Jews, Marxists, and cultural Bolsheviks who had at last been swept away by the National Socialist Movement under Hitler and the victory of the National Revolution of 1933, and quote. Note, cultural Bolsheviks. That sounds an awful lot like the cultural Marxism term bullshit that right-wingers toss around our country today. Right now, and you and I, we're in the middle of a pandemic, we're in the middle of a Great Depression that I believe next year, in 2021, that's when we will really start seeing uh, the effects, the economic effects of this fucking mess. Um, 
and you're seeing the rise of leftist groups and you're seeing the rise of right-wing groups. Very, very similar to the right-wing groups that arose in the 20s and 30s in, in Germany and Austria. Um, and you turn on Fox News, you listen to fuckers like Jordan Peterson or something, and they talk about how cultural Marxism is a threat, postmodernism is a, is a threat. Like, for, for one, cultural Marxism is not a real thing, period. Marxism is a analysis of uh, it's a criticism of capitalism and an analysis of a system that would work better than capitalism. It's an analysis of economics and of distribution of power. Okay? Um, so when you say cultural Marxism, that just doesn't make any fucking sense. It would be like saying cultural tuna. It's a completely different fucking thing. They don't work together. It's not an actual term. But that doesn't stop Fox News, Jordan Peterson, all those fuckers of that, you know, intellectual dark dark web, people of that ilk. They're spouting literal Nazi fucking propaganda points. Literally. Come on. Cultural Bolsheviks? Cultural Marxism? People's lives are very fucking difficult and desperate right now. And people, many of them uneducated, unfortunately, I say that's not their fault that they're uneducated. I say that's a product of the nation they're in. Um, Their lives suck. They're experiencing a lot of unpleasant living conditions. And they want to know why. Why? They want someone to blame. So they turn on Fox News because that's that's who, uh, you know, their parents watch. And Fox News says it's the caravan of immigrants coming in and stealing all the jobs. And a whistleblowing, anti-Semitic Nazi shit. Or you want to know why things suck. So you turn on MSNBC because that's what your parents watch. And they say... Oh, it's Russian agents and Bernie Sanders, Bernie bros. But the thing neither Fox News nor MSNBC do is actually threaten or or even acknowledge because they fucking know. It's them. They're the fucking problem. It's capitalism. It's capitalists. It's people who exploit the system and the uh, the economic system and the political system for their own personal gain. And it's also, I say, immaturity. It's fear. It's a dumb, close-minded, violent, oppressive point of view. And so you get people who maybe don't understand, say, something like Marxist analysis. They don't understand the distribution of power and wealth and how that directly affects their lives and how that directly led to their shit living conditions. So go back, uh, however many years, to the 1920s. Same thing. 
you don't know who to point the finger at. You know you've done everything you can. You try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and maybe you start to figure out that's bullshit. So you start hearing other people, leftists, anarchists, socialists saying, you're being exploited. It's your employer. It's the whole fucking complex of uh, military, industrial, pharmaceutical, political complex. It's the whole fucking thing, and it's the people running it. It's the 1% hoarding everything and exploiting you. Or you get right-wingers who say, well, it's the minority groups. It's these poor people who have no fucking means. It's these poor people who have no fucking privilege, but it's their fault. And that's what happened. And that's what fucking took hold. From Wikipedia, the anti-Semitic instincts of the German army were revealed well before the stab in the back myth became the military's excuse for losing the war. In October of 1916, in the middle of the war, the army ordered a Jewish census of the troops with the intent of showing that Jews were underrepresented in the army and that they were overrepresented in non-fighting positions. But instead, the census actually showed just the opposite that Jews were overrepresented in both the army as a whole and in the fighting positions at the front. So, why would they try to do that? They were trying to show that, oh, the Jews, they're not out there fighting for you. They're like in office positions, you know, sowing some problems. I'll get to here in a minute. Um, so, but, but it turns out, oh no, there was plenty of Jews that were fighting. Like they were just fucking people fighting in the war on behalf of their country. So with those results of that census, what did the Imperial army do? Well, it suppressed the results of the census. Charges of Jewish conspiratorial of a Jewish conspiratorial element in Germany's defeat drew heavily upon figures such as one Kurt Eisner, a German-born German, a uh, Berlin-born German Jew who lived in Munich. He had written about the illegal nature of the war from 1916 onward, in the middle of the war. And he also had a large hand in the Munich Revolution until he was assassinated in February of 1919. Also, the Weimar Republic violently, at the time, was violently suppressing workers' uprisings, Marxist uprising, socialists, people going on strike, people saying no more of this shit. Uh, the, the government was actively, violently fighting against them, say today. You have leftist movements. What are they being met with? Fucking tear gas and shit like that. You get proud boy MAGA marches. What do you get from the cops? Oh, nothing. They might join in. Very similar events. Um, well, while the Weimar Republic was violently suppressing workers' uprisings, they were also tolerating the right-wing paramilitary groups forming all across Germany. 
I would get into analysis. I I alluded to it in the last episode that, well, right-wing fascism does not threaten capital. The lefty shit threatens capital. So your capitalist government is always going to put down the ones who threaten their class interests and, you know, be okay with those who are not. Um, They tolerated right-wing paramilitary groups forming all across Germany. But in spite of such tolerance, the republic's legitimacy was constantly attacked with claims such as the stab in the back. Because many of the Weimar representatives, such as Matthias Esberg and Walter Rathenau, remember him from the last episode, they were assassinated. And the leaders were branded as criminals and Jews by the right-wing press. Anti-Jewish sentiment was intensified by the Bavarian Soviet Republic, which was a communist government which ruled in the city of Munich before being crushed by right-wing militia. Many of this Bavarian Soviet Republic's leaders were Jewish, which allowed anti-Semitic propagandists to connect Jews with communists and thus treason. So, in 1919, a well-known leader of the right-wing movement, one Alfred Roth, writing under the pseudonym Otto Arnim, published a book called The Jew in the Army, in which he, he claimed was based on evidence gathered during his participation in the Judensalung the uh, military census, which had in fact shown that German Jews had served on the front lines proportionately to their numbers. Roth's work claimed that most Jews involved in the war were not only taking part as only as profiteers and spies, but he also blamed Jewish officers for fostering a defeatist mentality, which impacted, impacted negatively on their soldiers. American architect slash architecture historian Richard M. Hunt argued in a 1958 article that the stab in the back myth was an irrational belief which commanded the force of irrefutable emotional convictions for millions of Jews. He or Jews, millions of Germans. He suggested that behind these myths was a sense of communal shame, not for causing the war, but for losing it. Hunt argued that it was not the guilt of wickedness, but the shame of weakness that seized Germany's national psychology and served as a solvent to of the Weimar democracy and also as an ideological cement of Hitler's dictatorship. So, that sets the stage for the even crazier shit that's about to happen, which I will continue covering. I'll get back to Himmler and then this dude, Karl Maria Villegat, who was this like super drunk fucking guy who made Himmler seem like a normie in terms of like occult shit. Um, 
But yeah, I want you to think about the stuff you've learned in this. Maybe you've heard of it before. Maybe this is your first time hearing any of this stuff. But I really want you to reflect on what happened back then and also on what's happening now and compare and contrast the things. Is there anything similar happening right now? Is there anything that could possibly happen that you could predict based upon similar things that happened in, in the past? Are there any lessons you could learn about how to view and act differently in the present? Lessons you can learn from history. I want you to think about that. And I'll see you with the next episode. Um, now, I, I'm on a campaign to, you know, I'd really love to make this my day job, my steady check. Um, but I'm not being uh, pipe dreamy about it. Um, and I also understand we're in some tough fucking times, but I really, really would appreciate your help. And I do appreciate the help of those who are already subscribed to the show and the, especially those who donate to my Patreon. And if you feel okay about it, if you're in a comfortable enough position, um, please donate, become a donor at my Patreon, patreon.com slash that thing with James. I would love to keep making the show and keep making it better and better and entertain and educate and, and explore new uh, parts of the universe with you. And um, yeah, so if you want to donate, patreon.com slash that thing with James. If you have not already subscribed, please subscribe. Um, for those of you watching on YouTube, be sure to hit that like button, write a comment. And for all of you, share the show with your friends. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at James J. Asher. And all of this information will be in the show description. Uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode, part three of New Age Nazis, and look forward to part four, where we're getting really back into the occult stuff and things will get very weird. I love you. Have a great day. Bye. <laughs>